0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin talk about stuff.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include...
0: Secret and magical
1: languages. Our research secrets. Recent Hong Kong movies. And preserving Andalusia. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex.
0: That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show.
1: Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school.
0: Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element.
1: Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider.
0: Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one.
1: The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards,
0: perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico.
1: And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too.
0: Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.?
1: Not at all! That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too.
0: Now, just like a university
1: essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment.
0: Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen.
1: And then the TA picks a winner.
0: And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free.
1: Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash MSU. That's
0: atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash M like Mike, S like sugar, U like union.
1: Or follow the link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's the way to do it.
1: The clatter of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the feel of shag carpeting under our feet, the sight of mediocre blonde wood paneling tell us we have entered the seemingly mundane confines of the gaming hut. But it is only seemingly mundane because the language that is used at the table is even more arcane than D20 stat blocks. It is a sacred and or magical language. Robin, what insights do you have for us on the use of of sacred or magical languages in gaming. Well, I thought we would roll
0: around the topic in general. Uh, You do tend to run into this in an uh, F20 context. Gary, in the original D&D, installed the idea that, for example, um, magical spells were written in a particular script that was indecipherable to the non-wizard. Uh, Yet, uh, if you had your ability to uh, read magic, you could tell what a spell was, and that was part of the whole discovery process of uh, finding spells. There was also other um, ideas in there that there were languages that were restricted to certain subgroups. So you had uh, Thieves' Cant, which in history is just sort of deep slang, which sort Mm -hmm. of, uh, depending on how you played it, was a whole... ...separate thief language in early D&D, and there was even at one point the idea that each alignment had its yes. uh, separate language. And that lone detail, along with the frequency of coming back from the dead, takes a and d world miles away not only from our reality with dragons added, but also from every other fantasy world. And it's something you never really saw explored very much. But I guess also there are uh, precedents in... Uh, myth, and even in history for the use of uh, really obscure uh, languages or imaginary languages. So you have Enochian, uh, which was the uh, tongue of the angels. And where does that crop up in in occult lore first?
1: Uh, Enochian is, uh, well, made famous by John Dee, obviously, because John Dee is the guy who, when he was receiving communications from angels, had to figure out what language it was in and the language that we know as Enochian is the language that was revealed to John D. and Edward Kelly. And whether or not Enochian actually fits the requirements to be an actual language as opposed to a sort of weird construct, I guess, is still sort of a, sort of a, a, a back and forth. Uh, you know, some people say that it looks very much like a constructed language, and other people... Uh, say that it looks like someone who was familiar with some, uh, Semitic languages trying to build that into English grammar. Uh, so the odds are that it was probably not the actual language of the, of the, uh, angels. The word Enochian comes from the, uh, biblical patriarch Enoch, whose, uh, sort of apocryphal, uh, book in the Bible talks about how he was taken up to the seventh heaven and shown all the arts and sciences by the various angels and it sort of lists all the angels that were in charge of stuff so if you are doing magic magicy things, you are doing Enochian rituals because they are after Enoch, and so that is why the language is Enochian, although um I think that uh d generally called it celestial speech or uh the holy language or angel language or whatever as opposed to uh, Enochian qua Enochian, but we, I think, enjoy um, Enochian because it sounds more fun.
0: Right, and and it's fewer words, right, or yeah. fewer, fewer syllables, I should say. Well, I guess both.
1: And that way, and, and when you have Enochian instead of Celestial, you don't get it confused with the alignment of lawful good language.
0: <laughs> um, and are there other sort of analogs in uh, in mythology or cult lore of uh, uh, languages that are Not spoken by humans or only known to a few?
1: Well, the the theosophists have the language of Senzar, which is the language that the Book of Zion was originally written in, uh, and that is the sacred language or uh, magical language of the Atlanteans and was used by them. Uh, and became it, it sort of root descendant after the fall of that root race and the rise of the new root race became Sanskrit and that is why the Indo-European tongue is the most elevated of all tongues because it's the one that is descended directly from Atlantean as opposed to whatever mud animal noises the other people made um, and then there's also Na'akal which is the imaginary language and by imaginary I of course mean completely well attested that was <laughs> invented by a um what do I want to say Eccentric Mayan, Mayanist, uh, stone crazy Mayanist named Augustus Le Plongeon, who was trying to decipher Mayan glyphics and figured out that they were in a language that he called Na'akal. And then James Churchward, when he, uh, discovered the books of Mew, discovered them on tablets written in Na'akal. So between Na'akal and Senzar and, um, uh, Enochian, we're, we're pretty well fixed already for, uh, magical languages. And then, of course, you can keep going on and on. Uh, there are people who say that there is a, a Ur language that is underneath, um, Sumerian, that Sumerian was actually was in two different versions. There was the, uh, sort of common version, or I guess that, that would be the male version. And then there was a female version of Sumerian that was used only in, um, uh, sacred rituals. And I, I, I don't know, remember if that is actually still a, uh, a thing that people think. It was, it was proposed. Um, some time ago in, in, I guess, the 17th or 18th century as a possible way to explain what Sumerian was. And it may still be that there is certain vocabularies that are sacred vocabularies and other vocabularies of Sumerian that aren't. And then, of course, Sumerian became itself a magical language after it was replaced by Akkadian. And then Akkadian became a magical language after it was replaced by Aramaic. So a lot of it is just if you are a a language that used to be the language of the big important empire, and then the big important empire gets overthrown by a bunch of jerks. Your language stays around because it is the magic symbol of empire. And that, of course, is why Latin was the official language of uh, Roman Catholic rites down to Vatican II.
0: And you see that in fantasy worlds as well, where, you know, the the real Elvish magic is written in old Elvish, and uh, it sort of takes the idea of the evolution of languages from our real world and uh, goes backwards with them and, and assumes that, you know, that uh, in a fantasy world, it's the ancient truths uh, that you have to uncover and that still really matter as opposed to the uh, truth lying in the future the way that it does in um, science fiction or within a scientific rationalist viewpoint. Um, taking it away from the uh, realm of the magical or the supernatural, of course, there's a tradecraft example in uh, World War II, the uh, Navajo Code Talkers, right. uh, where uh, this was a, a language that was uh, sufficiently little spoken that uh, the Allies were sure that no one in uh, Japan, and I guess in Germany as well, could speak it. And so uh, they brought uh, a whole cadre of uh, people who spoke Navajo in order to—that would allow them to just freely speak to each other over the radio, and it would be incomprehensible— to anyone listening. And I guess to go back into the realm of supernatural and the occult, you've got uh, uh, Lovecraftian languages. There's all sorts of tongues that are unpronounceable by the uh, human vocal apparatus, including the tongues that all of the uh, creature names come from, which explains why none of us can actually pronounce Cthulhu the way that it was meant to be pronounced by someone who has seven rows of teeth and 12 tongues.
1: Yes. Our Relian uh, vocal apparatus is, is not, uh, suitable uh, to, to, to frame the words. Uh, so when you say Cthulhu you're just approximating what it actually is supposed to sound like.
0: So the emotional, I think, hook of all the idea of being able to speak or understand another language, I think there's a couple of ways that this comes up in gaming. One of which is that it's the cool thing that distinguishes your character is having knowledge that other characters don't and becomes a specialization that you have. So you are the, as the magician or the sage in the group, you're the one who's capable of uh, looking at the spell and seeing what it's supposed to do, or uh, picking up the old book uh, bound in human flesh and opening it up and uh, knowing not only how to read it, but which weird ancient inhuman language it is, and then gleaning information from that. It's, oh, well, this is a book you know, written by the Lizardman sorcerers in the 38th century, so we know from that that uh, we'd better be prepared to be attacked by lizard man ghosts, for example. So if you are the one who knows the languages, you are the uh, guy or gal who has the info and you are ready to uh, present it to the rest of the group. And the other, the flip side of that is it becomes a puzzle in that if you are presented with a language that you don't understand, then it's, uh, you have to decrypt it and the uh, way to deal with that that i think is often dysfunctional is if you don't decrypt it you don't get the information and you don't get to go and explore whatever interesting part of the storyline would be revealed to you if you did decrypt it i think the more interesting way is you've got x amount of time to decrypt it before the lizard man ghosts come through the door and it becomes a race against time so it's not that nothing is going to happen if you fail to translate but if you fail to translate under pressure bad things will happen and if you uh succeed, then you go off in an advantageous direction. But either way, something is happening in the story. It's not the sort of bottleneck that Gumshoe, for example, is set up to stop.
1: Yeah, languages generally turn out to be cosmetic in a lot of games, mostly because it's so incredibly annoying to play games in which you don't know the language and you can't do the interaction. It it takes a big pile of things off of the GM's table. And while you can, you know, have a, even in a movie, you can have a, a sense of alienation in which the characters, uh, our hero speaks one language or him and his buddy speak one language and then they can't make themselves understood to anyone else. That's interesting, I think, in a movie context, but in a game context, it becomes really, really tiresome if you're, especially if you're intending to do something other than just stab people for not speaking your language, right? If you have to exist in that area at some point, you wind up hand waving a all right. You know it at a broken pigeon level and can get you know food and beverages and directions to the nearest dungeon, or it becomes a symptom of some other evil that you have to fix. Right? I just I just find that it it, it winds up being a real a real constrainer of story without actually providing any any real uh, juice on the other end of it.
0: Yeah, it's cool if you can do the thing where uh, you know the two mob bosses are conversing in Japanese and then you can reveal at the end of the conversation that oh you do speak Japanese and you understood what they were saying mm-hmm. but it's not cool if nobody can translate or if you uh, it's, well only this one character understands what they're saying that becomes a barrier and a lot of uh, first or second wave games sort of treated language as a skill that you had to buy in order to gain permission to interact and I th- as you suggest we've tried to move away from that just the way that Uh, any uh, fictional storyline is, you know, having actual language barriers between the characters gets old um, really fast. Um, So are there other um, less typical plot lines that we can um, think of in terms of of, uh, the use of uh, secret and arcane languages? One of them, for example, might be that you uh, start to discover that people are uh, waking up either in a fantasy game or in a modern occult conspiracy game or in the 20s or 30s Cthulhu game and suddenly uh, people who don't expect to be are now speaking a previously unknown uh, weird tongue and you could do that a couple of different ways one of them is that they are still able to speak their ordinary language but also they are unable to you know speak the language of the Deep Ones well uh, if you have accumulated any mythos knowledge by this point you know that's probably a sign that something bad is happening that you have to go and investigate because if uh just random people on the street are speaking deep one it could mean that they've all got the uh the blood of the deep ones in them and there's sort of a worldwide mass materialization of that that genetic material or just that some other weird possessing thing is going on and so in that case that's a an alarming phenomenon that you want to uh shut down. And it's even more alarming if the people are no longer able to uh speak their previous languages. And then what happened, what might happen then is a, you know, if you only speak this strange, inexplicable tongue, but also, you know, dozens and then hundreds of people all around the world are speaking it as well, well you're gonna get on an internet forum and start typing in that language to each other. And what does that mean? Does that form a whole new uh, community or a culture of people? And that could mean an alien civilization is invading via language and uh it's uh not direct possession because people still retain their faculties and free will and everything but naturally since they're now unable to read or speak english or portuguese or swahili or whatever they started out speaking now speak this other language they're going to develop a community within a community and how over time does that start to spontaneously develop into an alien society because of course language affects the way that we think and how we frame things, and a culture might arise within the transmission of that language.
1: Well, there's also uh, the notion that the language itself has power. Uh, That that you you learn the magic language not so much as a you don't merely learn to recognize it as a symptom, or learn it as the as what we were talking about earlier as the way that you sort of decipher the, the the magical text or the coded text. Uh, but you can also have a languages have power, and that can be sort of the straight-up magical tongue, which is that any time you say something in that magical language, something magical happens, and so it becomes the substrate that how you power spells or how you give spells to um, normally non-spellcasting characters is that they know one great word of power, and so they know how to say fire in the true language of creation, and that means that they can make fire happen. Or there is the other possibility that some aspect of this ancient language, it, like I used in GURP's uh, Horror Madness dossier, which I, of course, ripped off from Snow Crash, is that this language is the source code of of human uh interaction or even of human perception. The strong Wharf sapir hypothesis being that – or Sapir-Whorf hypothesis being that you cannot understand or perceive anything you don't have a word for, so if you can control the vocabulary, you are controlling – the actual lived experience of the people speaking the language, and then you pull that back into the notion of using a language like a programming code that uh, creates effects in your brain merely by thinking certain words, and that creates the whole you know possibility of showing glyphs that make you go crazy or saying a, a code phrase in ancient Sumerian or Enochian or proto-adamic or whatever that causes you to do stuff. Um, the notion of language as control code both as control code for the person and as control surface for the person's interaction with the outside world. You can have a lot of fun with that and get down to the point of something like Borges's Tla Nukbar or Tertius, where the existence of just a few linguistic concepts from the other world begins to subtly warp everyone's thinking until the other world colonizes ours and recreates it. And so that's what the guys speaking deep one might be, is the first wave of a retro creation in which the uh, Deep Ones uh, did a little bit better in the war against the Elder things, and so human DNA is 14% Deep One and only uh, and only 86% uh, Elder One constructed, and it's that little 3% extra bonus that is causing us to rotate out into a different perceptual universe.
0: Another possible plot hook is that the uh, characters come across, uh, you know, left behind on an airplane seat in first class, a Rosetta Stone language learning tape for a previously unknown language, and they pick it up and listen to it. And one of them learns the language, but it turns out that this is the language of the hidden 1% of the 1%, the secret masters of the world. And when they get together at... uh, Davos. Davos, uh, the really uh, connected people go off into a little separate room and they speak this language, the language of po- uh, primal power. And that once you, uh, go around, uh, you know, speaking it to your Starbucks barista, all of a sudden the alarm bells go off and they start sending their men in black to track down the people who are speaking the secret language of power. And once you start speaking the language of power, things start going your way, right? You get, Oh, mm-hmm. he- he- here's your free latte, sir, Right, and uh, they spell your name right on the cup, and then uh, you win the lottery and all these things accrue to you, and then uh, the people who are the guardians of this secret language, of course they've already eliminated the fool who left the tapes behind on the uh, the airplane seat, and now they're coming for you, so that could give you a a fun, sort of weird modern-day conspiracy twist to that kind of classic thriller structure.
1: Yeah, the, um, the notion that you stumble onto a piece of the secret language and you don't know what it's for can be, uh, again, it can just be a straight up code thing. It can be a, 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 a portal or into the wainscot world, either of magicians that live behind the real world or the secret conspiracy of, uh, rich, uh, Neanderthal talking bastards. Or it can be a rod of seven parts type thing where you find this, uh, bit of the vocabulary and in order to stop either the Neanderthal talking bastards or the secret coven of magicians, you have to find pieces of this word that are encoded into various things. Like the pyramids, if you read their geometry right, it speaks one set of, uh, one, you know, phrase or one, uh, couplet or one quatrain in the language. And you have to get enough quatrains to put together either a counter spell or, understand the the true and secret telluric navel of the world before the Neanderthal bastards or the secret magicians can get to it. And so it's sort of an archaeological, mystical, decody type thing. Maybe the whole Voynich manuscript exists only to provide um, the glosses on one of these quatrains or the gives you the hints that you need to decipher as many as three of these quatrains or uh, the the ones that the medieval writer of it actually knew existed, that kind of thing. But the thing is that the more you Read these quatrains, the less you can get by in regular people language, the more screwed up your interactions are with normal people because you are deliberately moving out into this sphere, and you don't have the Neanderthal language or the wizard language, you don't have enough knowledge to actually slot into the bad guy uh conspiracy or even the the long dead good guy conspiracy you're just sort of free floaters and That is the sacrifice that you're making is you're cutting yourself off from normal human discourse in order to be part of this hidden world.
0: And if there's a language that we aspire to speak here on Ken and Robin Talks About Stuff, it is brevity. So in the spirit of brevity, let us exit to our next segment. This week's supply of Ken and Robin is also brought to you by Double Exposure's Envoy program.
1: Envoy is an organized play program promoting games by a veritable myriad...
0: A verifiably veritable myriad...
1: Of today's most happening RPG companies including... Pelgrane Press. Arc Dream. Green Ronin. Hero Games. Pelgrane Press. Eschaton Media. Adept Press. John Wick Presents. And, of course, Pellgrain Press. Envoy connects GMs with stores and conventions to provide demos and full game sessions. To become a herald, not a person named Harold, but
0: a trained GM who earns Envoy points for heralding the games you love,
1: check out Dexposure.com. Backslash Envoy for sign-up details.
0: Join the Envoy team for Gen Con and or Origins.
1: Or demo freely anywhere in the U.S. like some kind of Johnny Apple game. Apple's not included. That's Dexposure.com backslash Envoy. Or click the link in the proverbial show notes.
0: Verifiably proverbial. It's time for Ask Ken and Robin... And this time, in Ask Ken and Robin, a mystery asker who is almost certainly Ruth Tillman asks, As a librarian, I am a big fan of the optimal organization of information. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach to organizing the copious research that goes into a game like Bookhounds of London or Um I have to say, uh has uh, light research uh, that sort of uh skims along looking for little bits of uh realistic detail to decorate its world and make it seem uh realistic. If I uh and I'm leaving I'm I'm talking first because Ken I'm a Piker in research compared to you. Uh, but the thing that I did recently that really had a lot of research involved uh was DreamHounds of Paris. And so that involved uh learning all about uh, Paris in the 30s, and more specifically about the uh, very complicated, detailed lives of the large group of intersecting people who comprised the members and satellites and sometimes nemeses of the Surrealist movement. And so my process there was to, first of all, start with some general surveys, uh, including a massive, massive tome on the uh, Surrealist movement itself, sort of written from a Bretonian. Uh, i.e. I, and from André uh sort of official perspective, kind of, and then move from there to reading biographies of all of the major figures. And, of course, the thing is is that their stories all intersected at different places, and the idea was to provide enough basic information to let you play a, you know, obviously simplified version of a lot of these characters. And so I relied really heavily on note-taking through uh Uh, google docs because that was something that i could do uh, wherever i happened to be reading all of these books almost all of them were in paper format i wasn't i don't think anything was researched on a a kindle or other e-format and then compiling them all by uh by years and sort of point forming all of the key incidents in people's lives and of course anything that had a kind of a Cthulhu-y spin to it, got uh, highlighted so that I could find it later. And then it was a matter of going back and uh, distilling, when it came time to write the book, distilling all the information into those second-person biographies and the other secondary material and the sort of uh, fictional diary format of the book of ants. And so uh, it's about gathering information, but also assimilating enough of it so that I can just sort of kind of try and channel a fictional version of uh, that voice in that time period. And I got to the point where I could see, you know, reading a biography of Artaud, that the biographer had some of the details wrong about uh, Breton, for example. So, I got to know it well enough to be able to spot uh, some errors, at least, and undoubtedly, you know, introduce some errors, which I, you know, hope we ferreted out and and killed, but it was basically a a process of uh, just reading a lot of material, taking notes of what would be necessary later, and more importantly, trying to uh, soak it all in. Now, I usually try to work on things where I am making stuff up about dwarves or aliens (laughs) or whatever, uh, because that takes a lot less research, but you, of course, specialize in taking the uh, vast corpus of human historical data and distilling it into gameable weirdness. So what are your uh, research tricks, Ken?
1: Well, organizing the research is kind of the last step for me. I used to count on my prodigious memory just to keep everything in a box, and then I would shake it and the book would fall out. But as, um, it, it, I don't know if you understand this, Robin, but there is some fringe uh, belief that Copious drinking is bad for your memory, so. <laughs> I'd, I'd completely forgotten that. Yeah, yeah, I'd never known it, and then I intend to forget it again as soon as I possibly can. Uh, if only I had some method by which to guarantee I could forget that. But as my memory begins to decline from its storied levels, what I find myself doing is organize, I organize the book in the way that I think the reader is going to need to know it, and whether that is, you know, a core book like Knight's Black Agents or a book that is pure, you know, research, uh, spatter like Bookhounds. I put the outline of the book down and then as I go through, you know, whatever I'm reading, I will just either write the paragraph as it's going to appear or I will make a note to myself, usually in a timeline form, but occasionally as it with Bookhounds in a geography form, uh, to indicate, you know, these are the sorts of things that need to be, uh, pulled up and then I will look for links between disparate bits of the notes so that I can ideally present a more um uh, a a something other than just a whole uh, bunch of dissociated seeds the dissociated seeds are how it goes into my brain and then the goal is to get the person reading it to have an illusion of comfort and control. So when they read Bookhounds of London, even though a lot of it is just little squibs of adventure notes and historical weirdness about given parts of London, as they read the whole section, they feel like they have an understanding of the whole uh part of London or the whole uh historical era. And then that is just, a lot of that is uh reading sort of uh, stratospheric level history stuff that goes up and, and talks about sort of broad big picture things so that you have a context or so that I have a context in which to present that information. And th- I may not even mention the context, but use, you know, the, the language of the, uh, of, you know, the actual prose word choices to imply a larger context that then the reader can put together as they, as they go through. And sometimes it's just a matter of, um, as, uh, Tim powers says, there's a point in every uh, book, where you no longer uh, are making things up, you're actually just doing research for a true secret history. Uh, once I get to that point, it becomes really, really easy to figure out what where the holes are and what I need to go look up next. Uh, when I'm doing uh, the Dracula dossier, you know you start running into one or two Romanian mafia gangs with weird vampiric habits. You then begin to start searching for more of them, and a lot of that is just you know Google News searches for Bucharest plus mobster plus blood. And then, you know, sure enough, weird stuff starts popping out. Or if you have an understanding that a certain uh, magical tradition or the Templars or something like that is always going to be good for a, a hit, you start following those guys along and plucking the, the fruits of, of gameable uh, goodness off that branch as you follow it down the path. In terms of the actual organization of it, that is a job basically for the final page. Um, to the extent that it's ever organized at all, it is organized as I think the reader is going to come look at it. There's not really an intermediate step where I have it all laid out for me to look at. That is in theory what my brain is for. Um, and then the presenting it to the reader in a usable, usable fashion, uh, I think, and as my brain has begun to, uh, hold fewer things less firmly, uh, the presenting it to the reader becomes, I think, more important relatively in the process of writing.
0: So step one, when you uh, are, are you writing your outline for something like Dracula Dossier, And then from that uh, going in, I mean, obviously you've got a baseline of research coming into the project mm-hmm. because you wouldn't have known to be interested in it right. uh, before uh, doing that. But for example, in the case of, uh, you know, Romanian organized crime groups, do you know at the outline stage that you're going to need a section on that and then go and start researching it? Or uh, is it something that while you're writing first draft, inevitably there's going to be stuff that you're going to run across mm-hmm. in the first draft stage, right? Oh, well, I've got to know this. Yeah. And then you have to run off and find it. But are there, uh, how much of a preliminary uh, amount of research or, or are you doing? Is it seamless that you're, there's research happening at all different phases or is there uh, a bigger research phase at one stage of the game than others?
1: Well, I mean, at some level, there's a bigger research phase at the beginning, because that is, as you say, when I'm getting enough knowledge to know that this would make a good good gameable topic. So in some sense, you know, I've been doing research for Bookhounds of London for 30 years, just reading lots and lots of stuff about London and, uh, uh, you know, occult books and and things like that, that all became Bookhounds of London, and it was the course of remembering what ought to go in, so I was able to make a pretty good, you know, initial outline. Uh, Usually, my knowledge of whatever the topic area is that I'm writing the book about is strong enough that my first outline stays pretty much constant throughout. Uh, With the Dracula dossier, there was a lot more, I think, of the uh, serendipitous discovery, or because I was working so closely with Gareth, there was things where Gareth would say, we need a thing like this, and I would say, you're absolutely right, let's go find a thing like this. Or I would say, hey, Gareth, what if we did this? And Gareth would say, great, I'm on it. And then he would turn something up. And so I would then research his research, or he would research my research. And I think that you wind up with a a really nice uh, interleaved set. But all of it has to slot into the initial sketch of what you need. But, for example, when I was outlining, what are we going to need to do in Romania, I probably mentioned... You know, look, find out if there's a Romanian mafia was the thing that I wrote down, or what's going on with the Romanian mafia. And then when I discovered that it's this literally balkanized set of crazy, literally crazy, uh, clans, uh, based around either ethnicity or all going to the same gym or whatever it happens to be, that gave me a lot of meat that I could then sort of balloon out into that, uh, eventually pretty large section. Whereas if it had turned out that the Romanian mafia was like, say, the Albanian mafia, um, or the Serbian Mafia, just a pretty much straightforward hierarchical organization. I probably could have knocked it out in three paragraphs and moved on. So a lot of it is what the research process uncovers will then inform how much gets put back into the page. You're right that there's always more stuff being found out. But I think that I'm either, you know, I'm good enough either at having done the initial reading to find interesting stuff or taking that initial reading and turning it into an outline that very seldom is there suddenly a whole new, you know, area, it's not like they added a, a part of London that I didn't know about when I was doing Bookhounds of London. I always knew that you had to have this stretch. But for example, I found out a lot more about North London than I'd known um, uh, before I started the book. And that was just because I started finding out things about, say, the you know Camden town murderer and things.
0: Right. And I I kind of feel that, uh, working today is cheating Yeah. (laughs) that compared to the amount of research that even when we started, uh, what that you would have to do in order to present a credible sense of a documentary reality of an unfamiliar place. It's, you know, it's child's play now at the, you know, you just need to think up the right search terms. So if you have a scene where the characters are going to the, uh, Republic of Georgia, uh, and then on there to Transnistria, you can very easily, you know, just look up on a uh, a tourist guide uh, how does uh, how does the taxi industry work in the capital of Georgia? And then you can find a couple of cool details that you wouldn't ordinarily, you you know, you wouldn't make up. Uh, but you know, previously you would have had to go and get a copy of the Lonely Planet guide, and it, you'd have to get it out of the library and wait for it to arrive, or you'd have to go uh, to a store and purchase it. And there you go. And now even now, if you want to, even if you, the information you need is in a book, uh, more and more, you can just, uh, you know, pays your money and you've got that uh, loaded to your device. And so mm-hmm. the amount of information that is, or you uh, can
1: do yeah. a, a snippet search on Google books or Amazon, right? They'll, right yes. they'll let you look inside this book, like, thank you, publisher. You're the best.
0: Yes. And yeah, if you're lucky enough that you only need the, that particular thing, mm-hmm. uh, that's fine. And then in other cases you will, uh, find uh you know that you need to actually acquire the whole thing and i guess the other part of research is to just be really interested in all sorts of different topics and read that material for pleasure as as part of your just your your reading time and that's how you discover the things that you're interested in or or, yeah and you know i found uh, you know a ton of different uh segments for this podcast or ideas for adventures just through uh my casual Uh, Reading, and uh, that's what you have to keep doing is making sure that you're not narrowing your focus only to your uh, topic of interest or things that you think will make a good game because somebody's probably already made a good game out of those. And so it helps to kind of be omnivorous in your... Uh, reading and and other absorption of information as well.
1: Yeah, having a having a big wide uh, spanning amount of things that you're interested in will certainly help you find the thing that is interesting about whatever it is you have to look at next, or find the gameable thing in the thing that you are already interested in. Or even if you were only interested. I mean, for example, when I was um, when I proposed Nights Black Agents, I knew you know I was a big fan of reading spy novels, but I did a lot of actual research into actual spying uh the nuts and bolts of it that I hadn't really bothered to do uh before writing the book um but I knew what to look for because I knew what you know you know John le characters did so I knew that there had to be some way of doing dead drops or some way of doing um uh, steganography or whatever and that led me into the into the batch of research the um but yeah when you talk about it being cheating to do it now even when I compare it to say canite heresy which there was Alta Vista, if you remember back in the day when that was the, the hot search engine, just the sheer amount of stuff that's online now. I, I had a bunch of Gnostic texts in actual paper that I had to buy. Uh, again, fortunately, there was a really great used theological bookstore in Hyde Park at that time, so I could go and buy pretty much everything Gnostic uh, for pennies on the dollar and uh, and have it you know open on my lap as i was uh doing my alta vista searches um but the uh but now it would all be you know somewhere in perseus uh, uh at tufts or one of the other you know compendia of ancient sources and i wouldn't even have to leave my office
0: uh well uh, speaking of uh, research one thing that we try to research on this show is how to get to the next segment so in that spirit let's get to the next segment
1: the smell of the popcorn, and the sickening, bone-crunching thunk of someone being smacked in the jaw, tell us that we have entered a fisticuff-laden section of the Cinema Hut. And previously, we talked about the classics that inspired feng shui games. And now, Robin, what say you give us some movies that are from the last the last couple of few years, the, the new classics, if you will, uh, the recent movies you can maybe pull up on Netflix or wherever that will give you modern-day feng shui uh inspiration what have you got for us
0: yeah it's a great time to be uh brink coming out with feng shui too because we are in a bit of a uh, hong kong cinema renaissance and uh also there are a lot of other cinemas particularly asian cinemas that are influenced by them but for this i thought i would give people some tips for stuff that they can find and uh you know, speaking of what we said in the next segment, finding this material is way easier uh, than it was earlier. Um, and so a lot of these, as you suggest, are uh, on uh, Netflix. There's a distributor called WellGo USA, and uh, they get a lot of Asian cinema onto uh, Canadian Netflix, and I assume U.S. Netflix as well. And so a lot of these things are currently Uh, on Netflix, and if not, you can find them by getting uh, the DVDs, which you can order from wherever you order your Asian DVDs.
1: So let's start then with uh, the Alan Yuen film uh, produced by and starring Andy Lau, Firestorm, and with a title like that, I assume it's about a Hong Kong cop who becomes the nuclear man and wears a ridiculous jumpsuit.
0: Well, there's there's no superhero element to this. Uh, Andy Lau, uh, for those who feel that you need to have complicated... Characterization in order to have an exciting movie should look at Firestorm, in which Andy Lau is Andy Lau playing <laughs> a hard uh, driven cop who, in the course of the film, becomes a cop who crosses the line. And that's all the characterization you're going to get, and that's all the characterization you're going to require. Uh, this is uh, one of a number of films that was inspired by a spate of uh, real life incidents in Hong Kong where the Bank and jewel robbers started uh, showing up with military-grade weaponry and vastly outgunning the cops. And uh, this—it uh, looks like a... it's
1: also sort of based on heat, or has a lot of similarities to heat.
0: Yes, it's—it's it's basically about uh, tracking down a, a gang of, uh, in this case, armored car robbers. And uh, the thing that distinguishes it is just how incredibly far the action sequences go and there are lots of exciting sequences leading up to the big final uh street battle which is uh will remind you of heat except that it basically becomes a gigantic war zone and uh, it makes good use of uh, uh cgi and uh, uh so basically everything blows up in this movie at the end and so for a crazy bravura big end fight sequence and uh sort of a contemporary styled version of Hong Kong action where they've uh, become good at integrating, say, CGI bullet hits. And as I suggested, uh, using that to wreak even greater ve- vehicular uh, and uh, property damage at the end. Uh, Firestorm, uh, I think, can can inspire uh, a big climactic fight or two for Feng Shui
1: too. The next one you want to talk about is actually three, which is to say it is the four. Robin, straighten us out, or rather straighten out... Uh, china so that it doesn't keep doing this to us
0: so this is a series of three movies uh called the four (laughs) so there's the four the four uh, and from 2012 there's the four part two uh, from 2013 and the four part three from uh last year and these star anthony wong and they're directed by Gordon Chan and Janet Chung. And they are uh, period wuxia films uh, in which uh, there's an uh, kind of an evil sorcerer character who's also a powerful merchant. And as is so often the case in uh, Hong Kong cinema, a lot of the conflict is about uh, infighting on the side of justice that makes it harder to get the bad guy. And so there are two rival police agencies in this uh in the ancient china and they are uh battling one another but the thing about this is it's based on a series of uh, i guess it's uh, whether it's a trilogy a fantasy trilogy or maybe a big fat fantasy book but it's based on a pre-existing property and uh you will recognize a lot of the tropes because they uh will very much remind you of superhero group comics so there's a kind of an x-men feel to this as well as a a wuxia feel not only in the fact and all the characters have uh you know superhero type nicknames and the uh brooding female lead is in a motorized pre-industrial magic chi powered wheelchair except when she needs to get up and kick ass and there are various ways to explain how she's able to do that and uh there's her love interest is uh at threat of becoming sort of a werewolf creature and the uh, action really escalates from one uh, episode to the next and the imagery gets weird and who turns out to be the uh, final bad guy is not who you would uh, expect it to be the way it's set out to be. Anthony Wong plays sort of the Charles Xavier figure for this group and uh, there's a great uh, reveal at one point as to uh, the extent of his uh, foo powers. And the final uh, film climaxes with a uh you know an ultimate uh, uh wuxia Fu powers slash sorcery battle where the uh different uh chi blasts are uh, all are really beautifully worked out with different uh, cgi colors and it's probably the most visually elaborate way of uh, imagining a uh, fantasy martial arts uh battle and they're uh, they're a lot of fun the uh storytelling is maybe a little tangled at points uh But uh, it's uh, a great sort of -of state-of-the-art series of big-budget, flying-people, supernatural action movies.
1: And uh, with uh, hero names like uh, Life Snatcher and Cold Blood and Iron Hands, you can already tell that it's going to be pretty great for your niche-protectee smack-around that is uh, feng shui. Exactly so. Now, the next one sounds like it is either a racist website... (laughs) or a uh, heartfelt NPR special about life in the new North Dakota, The White Storm. Robin, tell us why it's better than either of those things.
0: The White Storm is my favorite recent heroic bloodshed movie. Uh, And this uh, calls back, it it really evokes in a lot of ways, uh, John Woo's uh, bullet to the head. There's sort of three uh, cop characters who go off to... uh, thailand to bring down a drug lord and everything goes really bad and then many years later after uh, there's a division between them they uh, reunite to take down the the bad guy who made everything go wrong and the sort of john woo style has kind of uh, become rarer than some of the other styles and uh, this is a really great return to that so uh, doomed fatalistic uh, blood spattered gestures galore uh, occur here in The White Storm and the leads are uh, it's directed by Benny Chan and it's got uh, Lao Ching Wan uh, Louis Ku and Nick Chung uh, Nick Chung is a he's kind of been a dream and character actor in Hong Kong for years but uh, just all of a sudden now uh, in middle age he's becoming a bigger and bigger star so he's kind of the, uh, the Tommy Lee Jones of Hong Kong cinema there you uh, go. if you were but not Uh, Not the same kind of persona, exactly, but he does have that kind of uh, world-weary charm about him that uh, is kind of making him a star in his latter years. So there's, as usual, a lot of these movies really, really function on the charisma of the stars. And here we've got that charisma packaged within the uh, blood-spattered fatalism of the uh, heroic bloodshed-style film.
1: Okay uh we have another one called uh rigor mortis which sounds like it might be a um uh uh either a CSI type thriller or perhaps something with uh undead uh vampires and monsters in it so what happens in rigor mortis robin
0: it's b, uh, b! believe it or not Hurrah! it's an attempt to a successful attempt to make hopping vampires the jiangshi of chinese mythology actually scary awesome. and not only that but it's a meta commentary on uh, filmmaking and fame one of the original actors from the spoofy mr vampire series who's the only surviving actor from that series of films uh, plays a washed up actor of the same name who goes to live in a crummy apartment building which seems to be haunted and uh, it turns out it's uh, haunted by someone uh, there's a Uh, a uh, ghost-fighting detective kind of on the scene, and there's also uh, the unseemly doings that will lead to the uh, hopping about of a Shi. So it's a a fun kind of uh, crazy metadrama, but it also has uh, this uh, element of uh, real sort of scares to it. Uh, There might be a letdown at the end, but it's really still uh, very much uh, worth seeing and uh, brings back some favorite actors in a uh, surprisingly uh, moody uh, retake of something that was originally quite uh, silly and not all that uh,
1: alarming. So it's got a little bit of, I guess, if it's the former vampire actor and he moves into the place and there's a vampire, sort of a Fright Night, but also, uh, I guess, moody and uh, atmospheric in a way that Fright Night, sadly, was not. Although it was a great movie.
0: Yes uh, t- tonally it's it's not uh, fright night but it's got that same meta commentary on the horror genre is part of the text.
1: Fantastic. Well, that's, we love meta here in the hut. Uh, and now there's something called The Demon Within, which could literally be anything from, uh, drug addiction to a literal demon within. Tell us what's uh, going it's on with called that. called That
0: Demon Within. That
1: Demon Within. I'm sorry.
0: It's from, uh, 2014, directed by Dante Lam. He's been making a lot of great movies lately. It's got, uh, Daniel Wu and the aforementioned, uh, Nick Chung. And, uh, We've had a, a hard-driving cop who becomes a cop on the edge. Uh, this is about a cop on the edge who uh, loses touch with reality and goes kind of bananas, and a lot of it is... Uh, so it's a an unreliable narrator cop thriller. Okay. And uh, Nick Chung is... Uh, either the bad guy he's tracking or the uh, titular That Demon Within. And uh, it uh, escalates really well. It has a great atmosphere of uh,
1: paranoia, and it uh, blows up real good at the end. Fantastic. Then we end, I believe, with The Pirates. And uh, since The Pirates is Korean, you've already sold me on it. Also, it says Pirates. So are these cool... Uh, 17th century pirates swooping down on hapless Chinese villages, or are they modern day pirates doing something, uh, downloading Th- software?
0: Period pirates. All right. Uh, so uh, imagine if uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies had a consistent tone. Hmm. And I don't know if and, I like uh, that fewer uh, uh, wasted nonsensical uh, plot devices. All right. Uh, so this is a uh, a swashbuckler that pits cruel. Court officials uh, versus bandits versus pirates, and uh, what they're all uh, looking for is the uh, imperial seal that has been sent from the uh, from the Ming Dynasty to the Korean court to give them permission to be a, a new country with a new king. And it is uh, while it is being transported uh, from China to Korea, uh, a whale uh, swallows it up. Holy cats! And so a bounty is placed on the. Uh, Uh, on this whale, and the quasi-comical bandits, uh, led by a uh, disaffected uh, former official, and the uh, good guy pirates, uh, led by the uh, morally uh, righteous kick-ass female captain, are uh, in uh, their uh, rivals in this uh, search, and sometimes one is up, sometimes the other is down, and of course there is Uh, unresolved romantic tension uh, between uh, those two characters, and it is uh, resolved or perhaps quasi-resolved in a really uh, delightful way. So you've got your super bad bad guys, you've got uh, naval battles, you've got uh, uh, comedy, you've got this incredible uh, set piece in the middle where uh, a giant mill wheel uh, comes loose from its moorings and uh, rolls through the town in the middle of a chase sequence uh, interrupting the uh, uh, chase of the good guys by the bad guys on multiple occasions. And it's just a heck of a lot of fun. It's a fun swashbuckly movie and once again proves that uh, some of the best Hong Kong movies are at this point coming from Korea.
1: Some of the best movies of anybody are coming from Korea, in fact. But on that note, uh, since we've said that over and over again, it must be the kind of thing that we say as we leave a hut.
0: The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That, of course, is the vehicle that Ken uses to go back into time at the behest of Time Incorporated and bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes just even mutilate the timeline. This week we have another request of Time Incorporated by a friend of the show, Phil Masters, and this request sounds like maybe the kind of thing that's more up their alley than making colonialism better. And uh, (laughs) this time, Phil uh, wants Ken to preserve Andalusian civilization. And so the first thing I guess I would ask you is, when you're taking one of your preliminary research trips back into time to the height of Andalusian civilization to see just what it is that you want to preserve, Ken, what time do you set your time dial for, and what do you see when you get there?
1: Um, The Andalusian civilization is generally considered to be the Muslim emirate or uh, kingdom of in Spain that was set up by the Umayyads and fl- uh, sort of flourished in the sort of cheap anti-clerical uh, cod history of the 19th century in perfect tolerance and progress and beauty for hundreds of years before mean old Spaniards killed them. And uh, while indeed mean old Spaniards did kill them, Uh, The actual flourishy part is much more um, uh, scattered than the sort of propaganda makes you believe. There are plenty of examples of uh, the Andalusian civilization uh, being just as big a bunch of jerks as the Spanish, or even more of a jerk, such that uh, you had during the Almohads, and then later on during the Almoravids, you had periods during which the Jews were fleeing north to Christendom, which is the kind of thing that you didn't get very often in history, and when it happens, it's sort of a indictment of your civilization, I think. But, uh, by and large, people are talking either about the sort of, um, Caliphate of Cordova, the period during which, uh, uh, the Caliphate in southern Spain was the most advanced, uh, one of the most advanced, uh, sort of, uh, scientific cultures. They had Aristotle and all of the Arab, uh, uh, commentators on, uh, the Greeks and, and Latins. They had, uh, running water and, and baths and all manner of, of nice things. They had a general degree of religious toleration, certainly for the Mid- middle ages, uh, things like that. And then that sort of, uh, glorious period is what is looked back on fondly both by intervening Muslim dynasties, some of which reattained that, uh, that, that level of, of toleration and of artistic sophistication, although obviously they never quite reached the, the relative gains that, uh, the uh, early, uh, caliphate of cordoba had and then also the jews uh looked back on it as uh safarad the the sort of misty uh golden time of the past when before they were being persecuted by everybody uh always and forever and were rising to positions of great power and influence in um southern spain because the arabs were basically understanding that they were a uh a demographic minority in the peninsula needed to promote as many talented people from as many backgrounds as they could just to keep their emirate running. And the fact that their emirate kept falling apart indicates that perhaps they didn't quite do as good a job as the romancers want you to think they did.
0: So, uh, this seems to be an assignment that's uh, complicated a little bit by the uh, challenges of actual reality. Mm-hmm. But uh, how do you uh, extend? Uh, their flourishing uh, period and prevent the mean Spaniards from killing them.
1: Uh, there are there are sort of three different spots you can go into, and it depends on how seriously you take the remit to pre- preserve Andalusian civilization uh, vis-à-vis you know the, the the rest of the West. And the first spot you can go into is to hijack the career of Almanzor, who was born uh, Muhammad ibi Amir and later became known as Amanzor the Victorious by the will of God, after beating up other Muslims. And uh, he became the very powerful and influential vizier of the caliphs. They were the Umayyad caliphs of the time um, at Cordoba, uh, and uh, rose to great power, and then locked one caliph up in his library, which doesn't sound so bad, except that when that caliph died, he then burned the library down, which is why you need to Get um, almanzor out of it um <laughs> and the the probably the best way to get rid of Almanzor is he shows up as a as a law student and uh then advances by industry and hard work and being really really uh you know uh, good at his job of of screwing around uh screwing over other people until he becomes the manager of the estates for the heir to the throne uh hisham uh the second and what you want to do obviously is Get uh, Almanzor uh, drunk during a uh, crucial exam weekend, so that when he shows up to uh, recite the Quran, he's just vomiting and trembling, and obviously has actually spent the the uh, the, the night roistering rather than studying law and literature. Um, I'm not exactly sure whether or not Almanzor was the sort of guy who turned a blind eye to uh, roistering, but a lot of the people that he brought into uh, Spain in his realm, in his, uh, sort of reign as the, uh, vizier of the, of the place, uh, where the North African radical, uh, uh, Muslim Berbers and other, uh, Moors. And he brought them in because again, there was a, a demographic deficit for the Muslim rulers of Spain, and they had to keep bringing in North Africans to provide, uh, military, uh, muscle to knock off the Christians. But at this point, which is circa nine seventy five, nine eighty, the Christians are, are penned up in the northern part of the peninsula and they're splintered up into four or five different kingdoms. So it's not as hard for Muslim Spain to retain uh any degree of power, assuming that you don't deliberately destroy the caliphate, which is of course what Almanzor does. So if you get rid of Almanzor, um Caliph Al Hakam, who is a perfectly good caliph, uh dies, Hisham the second shows up and is not immured in his library, perhaps uh, he's obviously got a, an interest in um, uh, the ancient science and things like that. Him being able to reign instead of uh, simply uh, to rule rather than simply reign means that you have a even better flowering of the Caliphate of Cordoba. So that might be your first opportunity. Although, again, we're looking at a sort of a dynamic that repeats itself so often within uh, not just Muslim Spain, but Muslim polities all over the the, the globe that you begin to think maybe there's something bigger going on than one time traveler can fix. But if I have to keep coming back to the Caliphate of Cordoba and infiltrating harems and uh, drinking with uh, sage Jewish scholars uh, to keep Andalusia going, I guess that's what I have to do. Um, The other, the next place you can intervene is at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, which is the crucial battle that means that Spain is going to be Christians killing Muslims, not Muslims killing Christians uh, for the foreseeable future, because it winds up with Castile in the possession of the central highlands of Spain, rather than having just a bunch of uh, crummy valleys, which is what uh, the Christian kingdoms have. And once you have the central massif, then you've got a, a demographic position because you can raise horses and you can raise sheep and other, um, uh, food animals. And you're also strategically in a better position because you can march down into valleys instead of up over a mountain and then down into a valley. And, uh, to get rid of the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, you either get King Alfonso VIII killed at an earlier battle, which he lost very dramatically at Alarcos, and was nearly um, uh, killed on that battlefield. He tried, in fact, to die on the battlefield because he felt bad about having led his men into generalized destruction and had to be dragged away by his um uh, counselors, so... It should be a relatively simple matter to have his counselors on some other part of the battlefield and let King Alfonso become a martyr. Or in 1212, which is uh, 15 years after Alarcos, they're marching down into a pass that goes into the sort of central part of Spain that I'm talking about. And the uh, Moors have cleverly just fortified the sides of, of the mountains so that you can't get over that that central ridge and into the main Moorish part of Spain. And as always happens when all the passes are fortified, a shepherd turns up and says, well, not all the passes <laughs> are fortified.
0: I happen to know a switchback you may be interested in.
1: I happen to know a switchback you may be able to use. And, uh, of course, uh, Alfonso uh, trusts him and follows the switchback, and then they're standing up on top of the hill looking down at the Moors, and the Moors sit there for two days sort of uh, stunned at the uh, march. And then Alfonso leads them downhill, and after uh, something of a scrum, just obliterates the Almohad army. And the Almohads are the first batch of these, or actually I think they're the second batch, of these um, caliphates in Spain that have been reinforced both demographically and militarily, from North Africa, but the North Africans coming in have also been very religiously puritanical. They're very hardcore. They don't believe in any of your bads and civilization and uh, being nice to Jews. They're all about stabbing Christians is the whole job of, of a guy uh, in this world and none of your fancy gardens and ancient science books. So A
0: lot of hardliners come out of deserts.
1: It, it turns out be, living in a desert makes you... Uh, not want to, uh, put up with people who sit around in nice gardens and read books. Uh, so these guys, if they win at Las Navas Tolosa, there is the possibility that the Almohads will follow the general pattern of people who run Spain and fall into the position of sort of idle luxury and wine drinking, but they may not because obviously the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the guys who ran Morocco, it took them a good, a good long time to Uh, to to drift into that as well, and several civil wars. But if you prevent Las Navas de Tolosa, or if Las Navas de Tolosa has the same demographic outcome on Castile that it had on the the Muslims, you break the back of the Reconquista at least for 100 years, and then it'll be up to the next batch of guys to try and fix that.
0: So you have to find that switchback and put rocks on it.
1: Right, or find that uh, peasant and get him drunk instead of getting up early in the morning to show people switchbacks. The other uh, possibility is at the Battle of Toro in 1476, which is a battle, it's a civil war battle between two claimants to the Castilian throne. And uh, the Portuguese back one side, and the Aragonese back the other side. And the Battle of Toro um, is a, uh, a an attempt by the Portuguese to uh, besiege uh, Ferdinand of Aragon, in uh, Zamora. And uh, they uh, the siege breaks because it's terrible and wintry and awful. And so they break the siege at the beginning of spring and march back to Toro. And on their way back to Toro, they are caught up by Ferdinand's troops and Ferdinand slaughters them. And so the trick there, I suspect, is to betray uh, Zamora such that the Portuguese can get in and capture Ferdinand of Aragon and uh either, you know, throw him off a wall or just send him back to Aragon under a punishing uh, tribute and a humiliating surrender, such that he then does not win the War of Castilian Succession, does not marry the heiress Isabella of Castile, so there's no Ferdinand and Isabella, so there's no final attack on the last little bit of Muslim Spain, which is the Emirate of Granada, down in the absolute southern bit of uh, Andalusia, and Granada is pretty tolerant and pretty positive because it exists on the sufferance of the Christian powers and it can't be abusing uh, Christians and Jews too much or else the Christians will come in and, and slap it around. But, again, these are not people, you know, it's something about that peninsula it just makes you not think in the long term because the way that the war started was a, um, uh, the, the, or rather, not that war, but the way that the final war against Granada when it was extirpated in 1492 started was that the emir of Granada snuck up and burned down a, a Christian town. And when you are the one Muslim country in the peninsula surrounded by Christian uh kings who have just had a big marriage to celebrate how they're not going to fight each other anymore, that might not be the time to start another war. So uh making Boabdil not an idiot may be beyond my purview, but if you can have the war of Castilian succession come out the other way, such that the Portuguese wind up uh dominant in castile they're the last thing they're going to be interested in is unifying the uh peninsula under christendom what they want is for everything behind them to just shut up and let the portuguese colonize uh the indian ocean and uh what you wind up with uh with that is not just a possible uh, continuation of the Emirate of Granada, you also end up with Portuguese discovering America instead of the Spanish, which has all manner of interesting knock-on effects, I assume.
0: Right, I was going to bring that up. A world where Ferdinand and Isabella don't get together has a big, uh, different timeline. So, what uh, what does a uh, America discovered by the Portuguese look like?
1: Well, the interesting thing about the America discovered by the Portuguese, I think, is that it may not actually make as giant a difference as we think, because Uh, Cabral discovers Brazil in 1500, whether Columbus sails or not. He is going around uh, trying to do a big sweeping whoop around Africa and bang into Brazil. Uh, It takes them longer to find all the gold and silver than it does the Spaniards, though probably not that much longer. Uh, The conquest of the Aztecs may or may not happen. It may be that the Portuguese simply take over the, the coastal forts and then forced the aztecs to bring them gold and silver all the time as they generally did in india when they took over their their bits the portuguese don't do an awful lot of uh, land conquering. But then again, it's a lot easier to conquer Mexico than it is to conquer India, so they might have tried it anyhow.
0: And, and certainly, it's it's harder to be more genocidal than the Conquistadors.
1: Yes, although um, a lot of it is just going to be if you bring a guy with smallpox, the Aztecs yes. are all going to die. Uh, and the Portuguese had no shortage of guys with smallpox. The uh, other uh, thing is that the uh, cabotos, the Italians who sail for Britain, still find Newfoundland with or without Columbus, because that journey doesn't seem to have depended one way or the other too much on Columbus. Certainly they'll make the sale after um uh after Cabral finds Brazil and so the English colony colonization of North America, in theory, should tick along perfectly nicely. The interesting question is what happens to France in a world where there's no unified Spain on its southern border, uh, and how does that play out geopolitically, does do you wind up with a bigger French uh, colonial position in say, uh, the Southern part of the country, or, uh, maybe the French take the, the Aztecs out instead of the Portuguese. There's any number of, of sort of third order changes you can make. And of course, if you leave the, um, Emirate of Cordoba in existence in the same way that say Turkey has remained in existence after a conquest at roughly the same period, um, then maybe it is muslim navigators that discover america while they're sailing around uh getting slaves from uh, west africa or whatever and those guys uh are not the sit back and don't conquer places type of guys so they probably send all manner of uh uh invaders over to slaughter the the natives and turn them into proper muslims and that would be kind of an interesting uh, weird shift is if you suddenly start getting a uh Uh, A radicalizing Muslim native state in Mexico that has a strong interest in converting the Comanches and Pimas and other troublesome tribes on their northern border and sending them north instead of letting them raid them all the time. And I think that might be an interesting situation where the uh, frontiersmen pushing west from the American uh, colonies, Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and those, start running into... Um, uh, Mujahideen amongst the Lakota and and, uh, Arapaho in in lieu of running into pretty much nothing.
0: So we've got your multiple branch points, we've got uh, your knock-on effects, so I guess that leaves us with a little wrap-up question at the end. So what souvenir do you bring back with you to install in your Fortress of Haiditude from this mission?
1: Well, definitely, I am going to go, and me and Hisham are going to have some great uh, book talk. And I am going to get from Hisham, you know, that uh, lost copy of Ptolemy's biography of Alexander or some of the plays of Menander and Plautus that we don't have, or maybe one or two lost Euripides tragedies. I'm just going to go through Hisham's library and, you know, Hisham's obviously the kind of guy who goes along to get along. So it's like, hey, man, can I borrow these? No, that's cool. <laughs> Just bring him back any He he hasn't learned that lesson. Never loan books to a time traveler. He has never learned learned that lesson. Um, but anyway, Hisham is you know he's busy with other stuff. So he's got um uh, he's got a country to run. He's got a male harem to entertain. He's a busy guy. So he's probably not going to miss nine or ten or fifteen lost classics of the ancient uh, Greek world maybe aristotle's uh book on uh comedy is there and we can find out if northrop fry was right
0: well uh so basically uh your uh, souvenirs from a time travel trip are just like your souvenirs from trip. every
1: trip but... yes books i don't own
0: right oh uh well uh, on that uh, note of circularity and continuity i think it's time to declare yet another podcast encircled
1: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Double Exposure. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrine Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Keep us in Read Magic spells by hitting the Donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com.
1: Join such generous, not to mention repeat donors, as...
0: Rick Neal!
1: Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or bibliography by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height.
1: And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff.